just want to ask the question, why does the church today struggle with division and disunity? A church that's 2,000 years old, why does the church today struggle with division and disunity? Good answer. People. <laughs> and Satan. When we, when we read the book of Acts and we read of the, the growth of the church, we may fail to see the struggles that the church of the New Testament also endured. We tend to see the, the New Testament church and, I don't know, through rose-coloured glasses and just see, wow, this church is booming and growing. The truth is that the church has always had its struggles, always had its struggles. Even so, this doesn't diminish the power of God. And so we return to the book of Acts and we read of Paul in this chapter. He is now in Ephesus. He's arrived in Ephesus. And chapter 19 commences by stating that although there was a small and developing church there already in Ephesus, it had begun without Paul's initiation, it had its problems. The new believers had come into faith through Apollos. He had baptised them under John's baptism for repentance. And they therefore had not been baptised into Christ and they had not received the Holy Spirit. Even so, God was still at work. God was still at work in in their hearts, in their lives. He would draw them into a deeper understanding of him as he would with Apollos. Apollos would, would later learn more about God's ways. And sometimes I think we put too much emphasis on doing all things according to correct doctrine. Now initially you might go, hang on. We can put too much emphasis on correct doctrine such that we're afraid to do anything else in case we get it wrong. So I won't do it if I'm not going to do it right. I won't say it if I'm not going to say it right. I won't pray it if I'm not going to pray it right. It can limit our faith in God if we think that we have to have it all, our doctrine, all correct before we start to move. God has always been using fallible, sinful people like you and I. We haven't all got it together. We haven't always got our doctrine correct. But God can still use us. Praise God that he still uses us, uses you and I anyway. It's not by might, it's not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And so Paul is now in Ephesus. He spent a few days or months in a number of places until he is sent packing by the Jews in each of those places. Until he arrived in Corinth, and we'd mentioned previously, when he arrives in Corinth, he stays there for 18 months. Now in Ephesus, he stays for two years. He commenced in the synagogue, only to be kicked out. He was in the synagogue working, speaking to the Jews for three months until basically he's kicked out. He then spends the rest of his time, the next 
of two years, they're working with the Gentiles. Sometimes what we might think may be a successful ministry doesn't come to fruition. It doesn't appear that way as he tries to work with the the Jews in the synagogue. However, God is still at work. God is still at work and he's working in the lives of those those Jews as well. Ephesus was was a major city within the Roman province of Asia. Was built by the Greeks. It's, uh, it's what remains is now in Turkey. Was built as a major trading port linking the Mediterranean Sea and the Euphrates River. In fact, actual fact, the Euphrates River is all silted up now. It's no longer the mighty Euphrates River. It had an outdoor theatre that could seat twenty four thousand people. It was also the home of Artemis Temple, which was otherwise known as the Temple of Diana. This was a a major city, a hub of trade. It was a place of culture, of great wealth, politics, soldiers, of power. As such, it was also a place of great wickedness and moral corruption. This was a dark world not unlike our world today. Now Paul came to this place of darkness and he sought to be light. And we can learn much from Paul on this very point alone. Many Christians today don't want to be in a dark place. They look for the nearest exit, wanting only to work in or be in well-lit areas, if you like. They'll say things like this, there's so many many non-Christians where I work, I've got to get out of there and get into a workplace where I'm with Christian brothers and sisters. Paul, on the other hand, looks for a place of darkness because he takes Jesus' words at heart when Jesus said this, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Jesus says, the Bible says, that you are the light of the world. We are the light of the world. What better place to put a light than in a dark room? Now, I've replaced a few light globes over the years. Not once when I've had this light globe in my hand and gone to to replace it, not once has a light globe said to me, you can put me anywhere but don't put me in a dark room. Now imagine that that did happen. I'd have to say to that light globe, what value are you to me? What purpose can you serve if, if I don't put you into a dark room? You and I are the light of the world. 
Isn't that just what some of us do as Christians, though? It's not wise to go to places that'll drag us down. It's not wise to seek out places where we'll be tempted. But God doesn't want us to be hermits either, to be hidden under a bowl. We are to be in the world but not of the world. The darker the room, the more the light will be seen. We can be a heavenly beam that all lights will focus on seeing the light in our lives and waiting to step into that light themselves, wanting to step into that light. So what we find in our passage today, our passage this morning, is Paul stepping into the darkness, but it's also a power encounter. What's happening here is a power encounter. And like Paul, we need to be ready to shine in the darkness rather than be afraid of it. We shouldn't be afraid of the darkness. Now, Paul was in a dark spiritual environment, but God uses him in miraculous ways. Verse 11 to 12. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that he touched were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Imagine Paul making his tents and he's trying to earn a living. He's making his tents, he's wiping the sweat from his brow with a rag, tosses the rag to the side. Somebody picks that rag up and takes it to somebody they know who is sick and they watch them being healed. Incredible healing power. Even evil spirits were exercised through a rag that Paul had touched. Amazing. This is God at work. This is not Paul. This is God at work performing signs and wonders to show that he was by far the greater power than any other gods that they may have worshipped in this dark city. There were numerous temples in the city. Artemis was most popular. They had their associated religious rituals and numerous sorcerers and magicians within the city as well. Now, among them were the seven sons of Sceva, some local Jewish exorcists. And they watched what was going on and they listened to what Paul said and the other Christians prior to miraculous healings. These seven sons of Sceva had a reputation of being some of the best in the business when it came to blessings and cursings. And so they sought to add to their bag of tricks, let's use the name of Jesus. Verse 13 to 16 says, Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits, trying to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. And they would say, In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? 
the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. The seven sons, seven men, the seven sons of Sceva were the sons of a Jewish priest that appeared to be being very successful in delivering people from demon oppression. And again, remembering that Ephesus was a bit of a, a hotbed for religion and spiritual experience, they saw and heard how successful Paul was. In fact, more successful than them. A rag that had touched Paul could deliver an evil spirit. So they used his words, his formula, and they expected the same results. If we've learned learned anything about God in his word, he rarely does the same thing twice. He moves in mysterious ways and he will not be manipulated. He will not be directed through some formula. What the seven sons of Sceva failed to realise was that Jesus is the living God, the living son of the living God. He's real, he's alive. To use his name was, was as a part of a magical formula would not command his response or actions. There's little power in incantations, even if they include the name of Christ. The power belongs to Jesus alone. And this was another power encounter where God demonstrates that he is the only true God, the one and only true God. God was even using handkerchiefs of Paul to set people free. Now, I wonder at times about the prayer life of some Christians. They pray and pray and pray, and that's good, but they seem to forget that they're communicating with a living God. Communicating with Jesus, a person. They use all the right words, or they hope to do so, and sometimes they follow a certain formula, praying the same thing day in, day out. It's almost repetition. It's like a formula. There's there's little power in incantations, even if they include the name of Christ. Jesus wants a personal, private, special, living close relationship with you, with us. He wants you to talk with him, not talk to him, but talk with him as though he is your best friend. Jesus was Paul's best friend. To the sons of Sceva, His was a a name to be included in the formula. They didn't believe in Jesus personally. They didn't follow Jesus. But for those who do, there is power in the name of Jesus. The demon said to them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? 
I don't have to listen to you. Had Paul told this demon to move on in the name of Jesus, it would because Jesus was living within Paul just as Jesus is living within you and me. At one point in Jesus' ministry, he sent out 70 disciples to whom he'd given authority over demons. And when they came back, they report to the Lord what had happened and they're so excited about what had happened, how they were able to exercise evil spirits. Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Luke 10. Jesus immediately provides some greater perspective. He says, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Don't rejoice that the evil spirits submit to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You see, there is what is, what is greater by far than authority over demons is knowing that God is your father and that heaven is your eternal home. It's that personal relationship with God. That's by far more important than having power over demons. Rejoice in that. God is your father. Heaven is your, your home. And so in a city that is flooded with religion and pursuits of power, God makes his authority known. The demon sent the seven sons of Sceva packing, bloodied, naked and afraid. But when the people, when the people heard what had happened, verse 17, they were all seized with fear and the name of Jesus was held in high honour. What takes place from that point on is revival. Revival takes place. Many confess their sin, put their faith in Jesus. They destroyed their previously adored religious artefacts, their scrolls, their pagan practices. Revival takes place in the city of Ephesus. Now, if a policeman was to walk in here and say, stop in the name of the law, he has authority to cause you to stop. As Christians, you and I have authority to tell Satan to stop. We can tell Satan to stop. Stop hassling me. Stop tempting me. Stop leading my children astray. As Christians, you and I have authority to evict demons from our homes as we put our faith in Jesus to do that work. And he will do that work. It's Jesus who has all authority. And Jesus wants us to trust him to work in power in our lives and in the lives of those that we love because he's still in the business of redeeming prisoners out of this dark world. He has given us his power to tap into, power to break strongholds, power to release captives, power to heal and 
power to deliver. There is great power in Christ and he lives within us. In Matthew 28, Jesus said to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of the world. All authority, all power. Colossians 1 tells us that God holds all things together by the power of his name. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. If God can hold the universe together, then you and I should be greatly encouraged. Greatly encouraged because there's no part of your life or mine that God can't control through the power of his name. Isn't that wonderful? Whatever you're going through, whatever you're facing at the moment, God has power. Our saviour, our best friend, holds power over all that of the heavens and the earth. Nothing is too hard for him. He has the victory. But we must also recognise and understand the providence of God. The sovereignty of God. And although he's not pleased with Satan, he allows him to continue to exist and he allows him to roam this earth. However, we must never forget that Satan cannot do anything without God's permission. Without God allowing it. Remember the story of Job. Satan had to get permission from God before he could lay a finger on him. And there are many storms that you and I face in our lives. Some of those storms are not unlike the storms that Job faced. There are many storms that we face. Some we must rebuke in the name of Jesus. Some others we must flee from. And others we must simply stand firm and persevere. Spending time with the Lord Jesus and asking him, what this storm that I'm facing, do I need to rebuke it? Do I need to flee from it? Do I need to stand firm? Do I need to be strong and persevere through it? Seek the Lord. And so how well do you know Jesus? Is he your best friend? What does your prayer time with him look like? Are you trusting him with your family? Are you asking him to move in power in their lives to his glory? Are you afraid of the dark? Or are you seeking to be light shining for the glory of God? And is there anything that you've been hanging on to and realise that you need to destroy? To show God that you're serious about following him. Let's be following Jesus into 2023. Whatever this year looks like, 
Every day is a good day when you're walking with the Lord. Amen.